Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. The New Testament lesson today is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he approached a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, Were not ten made clean, but the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Get up. And go on your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. This is a reading from Second Kings. Naaman, a general for the king of Aram, was a great man and highly regarded by his master. Because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was a mighty warrior, but he had a skin disease. Now Aramean raiding parties had gone out and captured a young girl from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master could come before the prophet who lives in Samaria. He would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went and told his master that the young girl from the land of Israel had said. Then Aram's king said, Go ahead, and I will send a letter to Israel's king. So Naaman left, and he took ten kicklars of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. He brought the letter to Israel's king. It read, along with this letter, I'm sending you my servant Naaman, so that you may cure him of his skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he ripped his clothes, and he said, What? Am I God to hand out death and life? But this king writes me, asking me to cure someone of his skin disease. You must realize that he wants to start a fight with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that Israel's king had ripped his clothes, he sent word to the king, Why did you rip your clothes? Let the man come to me, then he'll know there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman arrived with his horses and chariots, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent out a messenger who said, Go and wash seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will become clean. But Naaman went away in anger, and he said, I thought for sure that he'd come out and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the bad spot and cure the skin disease. Aren't the rivers in Damascus, the Abna, and the far, far better than all Israel's waters? Couldn't I wash in them and get clean? So he turned away and proceeded to leave in anger. Naaman's servants came to him and spoke to him. Our father, if the prophet had told you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? All he said to you was, wash and become clean. 
So Naaman went down and bathed in the Jordan seven times, just as the man of God had said. His skin was restored like that of a young boy, and he became clean. He returned to the man of God and all his attendants. He came and he stood before Elijah, saying, Now I know for certain that there's no God anywhere on earth except in Israel. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Do we recognize a moment of grace when it presents itself to us? If so, how do we know that that grace will transform us? These are the persistent questions behind the stories of the healing of the ten lepers and of Naaman. These are stories about how we understand our lives both as individuals and as a community. They imply two essential ways of being in the world. One that assumes that my life and all that fills my life is simply what more or less I'm entitled to. You can only guess that those nine lepers who disappeared from view without so much as a thank you honestly felt that good health was their right, not a gift. They simply had what was owed to them. The Naaman and the tenth leper who returns and drops to his knees before Jesus are testimonies of the other attitude. Thankfulness is actually a life stance, a fundamental attitude that says, here I am, alive and whole. I might never have been, but here I am, and I did nothing to deserve this life. It is a gift. It's grace. In reality, few of us fall neatly into either of these categories. Sometimes we're astounded by the giftedness of life. And at other times we're consumed by thoughts about fairness and entitlement. Sometimes we recognize grace for what it is, and other times we miss the whole deal. Henry Ward Beecher, the great 19th century American preacher, described what it meant to live a life of gratitude like this. Suppose someone gave you a dish, a bowl, that was filled with sand and also had sprinkled in it a whole bunch of iron filings, of steel filings. You can't see them with your eyes. You can comb for them with your fingers, but you cannot find them. Then you take a tiny magnet and draw it through the sand, and the magnet is covered with iron filings. The ungrateful person is like our hands combing the sand. Such a person can find nothing to be thankful for. The grateful person, on the other hand, is like the magnet sweeping across the sand. That person finds hundreds of things to be thankful for. The recognition of grace is not a matter of how much one has. We've all known people who have almost everything that they could ever want or need. And yet they live with some great emptiness. And we've known others who seemed to have less than zero, whose lives have nonetheless demonstrated a remarkable wholeness. And so it is that Luke tells us about a community out on the margins, ten lepers, ten outcasts, forced to live at the fringes of humanity. Their diagnosis was a sentence to exile. Clothing affected by leprosy was burned. Houses 
were torn down. People beset by leprosy were shunned, as the saying go, like the plague. Ten lepers begged Jesus for mercy, and Jesus, skipping the pastoral care, sorry, Melissa Ann, responds with a command to go and to show yourself to the priests. All ten respond by going as they have been told, obeying the command, all ten. And all along the way down the road of obedience, ten are healed. All ten come out wearing new skin. Naturally, they're ecstatic and do what any of us would do if we're headed down the highway with a brand new life. We would accelerate. Jesus told them to go, and in the going, they were healed. What are new feet if not to sprint toward the finish line of what they were commanded to do? To the priests, and then quickly get on the way. But one of them stops, incredulous by an unexpected gift. In such a state, he discovers something more important than obeying the instructions he's been given. He follows his heart instead of his instructions. He needs to express his gratitude. He must offer his praise, and so he spins around and runs back to Jesus, praising God with a loud voice, and then falls at Jesus' feet, offering acclaim. His response is not just a single expression, not just about giving thanks, but it gives witness to a trajectory, a process at work in him, a spectrum of reaction to God's grace. We're not necessarily called to respond as he did. Rather, we're called to imagine our own way of keeping faith. This man is a Samaritan and not a Jew. It's surely a point that Luke wanted to make for Throughout Luke's gospel, it's the outcasts like the Samaritan who recognized Jesus for who he truly is. The outcast is the one who improvises his gratitude and praise, making it into a whole new life. It's a marvelous instance of improvisational generosity that points to the agility of God to transform our lives. Writing about gratitude, the historian Diana Butler Bass describes herself as a full-fledged gratitude klutz. She said she found it so hard to express, express simple gratitude at a snowfall or a sunrise over Lake Michigan, a sunset over Lake Michigan. She found it hard to give thanks for the simple gifts of her children. She found it hard to find the good things in the ebb and flow of life. And so she openly confessed that she felt like a graceless failure in writing thank you cards, first as a child and then as an adult, musing that there must be some ingratitude built into her DNA. She devoted years to writing a book project on gratitude. She came to see that gratitude is a feeling and an action. It's personal and it's communal. It's not a commodity of gift and exchange of transaction and duty. It's a spiritual awareness and a social structure of what it means to give and receive. Last week I found a bag full of blueberry muffins and a container of homemade chicken noodle soup hanging on my office door. What a delicious and lovely treat. 
A note in the bag expressed how something I had done in this transitional time in our church's life had affected the giver. And so she thanked me in a positive way. For all you do, I am deeply grateful, she wrote. Not just grateful, but deeply grateful. She wanted to make sure that this was not something transactional or mechanical, like saying thank you to a clerk at the grocery store. But in the giving, she had experienced clarity and healing and an intense sense of thankfulness through my work here, keeping the church vital and healthy. Not cheap gratitude, but deep gratitude. This temporary role, one that I share with my colleague Melissa Ann, is not one that I anticipated or sought. I'd rather pursue my work with our residents and and mission and working with our adult ed people. But stirred by a sense of God's calling and asked by our session, emboldened by the gift of the Spirit and working through the Holy Spirit and working among a tremendous group of elders and deacons, of guests and leaders and ministers, and possessing a latent vision to influence our community and world with the justice, mercy, and humility of the gospel. I am grateful that we have the chance to write another chapter in our ministry. We are yet an unfinished project that God is tending, nurturing, and challenging toward another day. We all stand in need of divine intervention to bring hope and healing into our lives. No matter how many championships or accomplishments or blue ribbons you have stashed in your house, No matter how many, no one is free of difficulty. Naaman is not only a high-ranking member of the enemy Syrian army, but the chief commander of his king's army, the army that brought down the king of Israel. When the conflict ends, Naaman is left with great wealth. The beauty of the war, including a young girl captive from the land of Israel, But that's not all. He's also struck with leprosy. Remedy comes from an unlikely source. The Hebrew slave girl tells her mistress about Elisha, the wonder-working prophet of the Lord. Wife speaks to husband. Husband goes to his king, who writes a letter to his Hebrew enemy about his beloved commander. Please cure my servant, Naaman. The situation is bizarre. A hostile pagan king asking an impossible favor for his generalissimo, thereby setting the stage for disappointment in what might be the next political disaster. When a king balks, a prophet of the Lord rushes in to salvage the situation. Elisha tells Naaman to come, and when he comes, it's with all the horses and chariots that would have been otherwise deployed in a bloody war. Elisha stays indoors while a messenger walks outside to deliver the holy man's words. All Naaman must do for his leprosy is wash seven times in the river Jordan. That's all. Contrary to Elisha's expectations, Naaman did want to be healed, didn't he? The commander of legions is incensed by a series of slights to his dignity. Yes, he has leprosy, but he is, after all, the esteemed warlord of the king of Aram. 
who deserves a personal audience with a prophet and not a second-hand servant-delivered prescription. Then there's the insult to the injury. Bathe in the Jordan, that muddy trickle, are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? No wonder Naaman turned in rage. But again, it's the servants who saved the day. In the beginning, the Hebrew slave girl who had spoken about Elisha and his powers. Now at what seems to be another stalemate, her fellow servants rush in to, to rescue the situation with common sense. If the prophet had commanded something arduous, Naaman would have perhaps done it. The effort would have seemed something worthy of a great and heroic man. Instead, Elisha just says, wash and be clean. But perhaps what could be done with difficulty could also be done with great ease. Wouldn't it make sense just to do it? We're not told about what goes on in Naaman's heart and mind or what pride he has to swallow or how filthy the river Jordan is. All we know is that Naaman descends into those waters seven times, sees his leprous skin restored like the flesh of a young boy, and acknowledges the authority of Israel's God. And to ensure that he can render proper thanks to the Lord when he returns home to Syria, he gets permission from Elijah to carry two mule loads of dirt back home within, a place of Israel upon which to pause and give thanks to the one who washed him clean, gratitude, imagination. We're often surprised, even incensed, at the way that God chooses to intervene in our lives or in the course of ebb and flow of a church's life in order that there might be healing and redemption and restoration. So surprised, in fact, that we find the way forward hard to imagine. Naaman was too proud to believe in the simplicity of his cure. The king of Israel too fearful to believe himself a conduit of Naaman's blessing. And the nine lepers fled the presence of the God who had saved them. Although Naaman's visit brought great anxiety to the king, the prophet of Elisha was unfazed. And sure of his role in God's healing. So sure was Elijah he didn't even come out of his house. When Naaman arrived almighty and important looking for a big impressive answer. The prophet's confidence in God was perceived as a slight. He was further irked because he had to trek all the way across the country to wash himself in the Jordan River instead of staying home and bathing in the great rivers of Syria. Naaman's healing, though, was not in a river, but in obedience to the leading of God through the prophet. Naaman expected the prophet to stand before him and heal him on the spot, waving his arms. But then he stood before the prophet, cured, helped, healed, and transformed, and Grateful to learn that God is at work in the world. Now I know for certain that there's no God anywhere on earth except in Israel, he exclaims. Naaman learned something of the nature and providence of the God. Something that all of us as leaders can take note. Naaman, who was miserably ill, almost cheated himself out of a healing because of his arrogance. 
The knowledge of God and truth of our circumstances come to us from unexpected sources. Lepers running down the road, a young servant girl, a prophet, a powerful general. And God's providence is deep and complex and fails to fit our assumptions about how life should unfold. At the intersection of grace and gratitude and of God's providence, there is a great humility in this life of faith both for individuals and communities, all who are trying to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. About this, the great poet Maya Angelou once remarked, I'm working at trying to be a Christian, and that's serious business. It's not something where you think, oh, I've done it, I've got it done, I did it all day, hot diggity. The truth is, all day long you try to do it, try to be it, And then in the evening, if you're honest and have a little courage, you look at yourself and say, hmm, I only blew it 86 times today. Not bad. I'm trying to be a Christian. And in a culture that feeds itself on competition and winners and losers, and above all else, rewards results, it's not surprising that we award speed and expertise over imagination and faithfulness and agility. Again, Maya Angelou, I'm always amazed when people walk up to me and say, I'm a Christian. I think, really? Already? You've already got it? Amazing. You're really fast. (laughs) Thanks be to God who saves us in amazing and surprising ways and who holds us deep in the palm of God's own hand in love and grace and mercy and will not let us be left to our own devices. Thanks be to God. Amen. And amen. Let us continue on in a spirit of prayer together. Let us pray. God of wonder, of winter, our warm place and our safe shelter, with thankfulness we offer our prayer to you. You gave us life and have given us language, words spoken and music played. In what is spoken here, in the words of our hearts, in the melodies which move us to praise you, we turn to you. We are humbled by your greatness, we are in awe of your nearness, and we are perplexed by your silence. Let us sense you drawing near to us in these most precious moments. Soon we will gather with family, with friends, more food than we could possibly eat, and we'll be prepared, and traditions will continue, and we will count our blessings. Let us remember those without abundance, without enough. Let us turn those questions into decisions to give, to share, to reach out, to hope for a world that is not this way. This year, O God, the anxieties of these times and a deepening well of uncertainty join us at table. And so we turn to you, for we are weary and tired, and we need a day of gratitude that we do not take for granted, a day we genuinely give thanks for your sure presence with us at table and beyond for the way you reveal yourself in the acceptance of family and the love of neighbor, and in friendship, those gifts that truly matter. Give safety to those who journey in this week ahead and fill with gladness the lives of those who serve others this week. Be in close communion with those who endure this holiday week alone. Let us not forget those for whom this year is just like the other ones, for those who are still separated from their loved ones off serving their country in foreign places for those held captive to circumstances that prevent fullness of life, 
illness or poverty or estrangement from loved ones. We hold in our minds those in a chronic state of need who, whose need has rendered gratitude as unrecognizable. And we pray especially today for those who are suffering the effects of natural disaster, of flood and fire, of all that has dismantled their lives and left them in disarray and pain. We pray, O oh God, that we would remember them in tangible ways this year as we give of our offerings, as we come to pray for them, as we go where you call us to serve those in need. Jesus, you are the power to heal our diseases, to raise the dead, and to raise our spirits. You are the one who gives us words to speak to one another in love, no matter our differences. Only your power can heal relationships, heal broken bodies, and heal the hurt that is there. So gather these prayers, O oh God, the spoken, the unspoken, and so much more, as we pray as Jesus taught, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.